I'll start by saying, I guess, is that sometimes things that might look a bit insignificant in some people's eyes are actually far more significant than we could ever believe that they would be. I want to give you a kind of a little funny example about that. Um, have a look at this bowl. This is an interesting little bowl. Let me tell you the story behind this bowl. Uh, there was a man uh, who lived in London, walked down the street one day, thought go into one of those little op shops, kind of antique little places, and saw a bowl and he thought, that's a nice bowl. Might be good for some cashew nuts. I'm not actually sure if that's exactly what he thought, but, you know... If he was like M and can't eat nuts, then he wouldn't have thought that. But, um, you know, he bought it for $3, took it home, and, you know, just kind of sat in his bookcase or whatever and sat there for about seven years. Seven years later, uh, a man came in, one of his friends, kind of took notice of this bowl. Kind of was looking at the fineness of the china. Was looking at the ivory glaze. And he started asking his friends some questions. He said, where did you get that bowl from? You know, do you know much about that bowl? It's very finely crafted. Anyway, this prompting these questions made the owner of the bowl think, well, maybe I could check it out, get it valued. So he took the bowl to a valuer, a bowl valuer. I don't know if you know any bowl valuers. I'm not sure if that's a uni course, but um, took it down to get valued. And the valuer was very interested in this bowl. But he kind of looked at it and he said, this is an extremely rare bowl. Uh, what this guy thought was just a piece of junk that might be good, you know, for $3. Well, actually it turns out it was a thousand-year-old bowl. Dated from the Song Dynasty, Chinese bowl from the year 960. And the valuer said, that bowl is probably worth around $200,000. Well, the man thought, well, if I can get $200,000, I'm going to cash in on this. So he took it to an auction, one of the great, you know, big London auctions of the fine arts and ancient bowls. I don't know if you've ever been to an ancient bowl auction, but that's what he did. Took it there, and there was a few people actually interested in this bowl. And the bowl sold for $2.25 million dollars. And now it sits in one of London's most prestigious ancient Chinese museums. Sometimes, you know, things that we kind of look at and think, I don't know, it's not very significant, are actually far more significant than we could believe. And Paul wants to say tonight in this book of Colossians, this first little section that we're looking at tonight, he wants to encourage this little church, this group of Christians who are meeting together, he wants to say, don't underestimate what you've got with your faith. If you're someone who trusts Jesus, if you're a Christian, don't underestimate just how valuable that really is. It seems to me, actually, that our world doesn't really believe what Paul believes tonight, what Paul writes to us. Uh, more often than not, perhaps here at uni, you hear the complete opposite to that. Uh, you might hear that, you know, Christianity is on the way out. Uh, maybe your friends, maybe your classmates, perhaps your lecturers, your family members even, might kind of bag you out for Christian beliefs. Uh, there might be times when you kind of feel it's really weird being a Christian here at uni. And you might kind of start to think that, well, maybe Christianity isn't that significant. Uh, you turn on the TV, 
or you read the newspaper. Although most of you guys probably don't read newspapers. You probably just scroll through Facebook or whatever it is. And what do you see? Christianity, it's outdated, it's backwards, it's intolerant, it's... Well, if it's not completely to be left behind, well, just keep it to yourself, right? Keep it behind closed doors, just don't bring it out into the public space. It seems to me that more often than not, that's the kind of voice that we're hearing about Christianity. That's the message. I don't know about you, I don't know how you go in your classes, uh, but you kind of feel the pressure of it, don't you? feel the pressure that maybe we shouldn't speak up. Maybe you're a class at uni and you think, actually, my faith really brings a perspective to this discussion we're having, but maybe you feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't speak up about that. Maybe you're at lunchtime sitting up in the SU and having chats with people and you're just a bit worried that if you speak about your Christian faith, then you might get a bit bagged out for it. I think it's a real danger for us at uni to be people who maybe don't speak up when we should. We feel the pressure. We're tempted to kind of think, yeah, we really should keep this Christian faith stuff behind closed doors. But the problem is, and what I want us to look at here in Colossians chapter 1, the problem is that, well, Paul wants to tell us that this Christian faith thing, well, it's actually not just your faith. It's not just something that you believe. It's actually God's thing. And that changes everything. It's actually something that teaches us the truth about God, the truth about the world. And so Paul wants to tell us tonight, he wants to say, don't forget how significant your faith really is. Uh, What I want you to see tonight, hopefully, as we look at these verses, is that the Christian faith is incredibly precious. Uh, It's not like a three-door bowl. It's like that thing that needs to be displayed. So everyone can see it, everyone can know it. Uh, the passage we're looking at tonight falls into four different parts. There's kind of some places there for you to take notes. And Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 there by introducing himself, which is kind of interesting. Uh, if you've got a Bible passage here in front of you or a Bible, I have a look there at verses 1 and 2. Paul opens up by writing to this church in Colossae, uh, kind of a modern-day town in the, um, in the place of Turkey. And it's interesting, Paul actually starts to describe himself. That's kind of how they wrote letters back then. And Paul says, first and foremost, he says, verse 1, you can see it there, he describes who he is. He says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now, I want you to stop there and just have a look. What does that word mean, apostle? What does it mean to be an apostle? Well, it actually just simply means sent one. Someone who is sent on the authority of someone else. That's all apostle means. Back then, in in those days, uh, if, say for instance, there was a king, and they were at war, and they were fighting, and they were on two different fronts, they might send an apostle or a messenger with words from the king to another part of the battle to bring the king's word to that particular situation. So that's that's what Paul is saying here. He is an apostle. He's a sent one from King Jesus. And so he's bringing Jesus' words by the will of God to this church in Colossae. See, when you read the Bible, it makes this kind of incredible claim that this isn't just some human's words. This is actually God's words. These are coming on the 
authority of King Jesus by the will of God. This isn't just Paul, some first century guy with some ideas. No, these letters that we read in the New Testament are the words of God, and that's significant. But secondly, have a look at who these words are addressed to. In verse 2, these two, Paul addresses this letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossians. He addresses this letter to saints. Now, I don't know about you, have you ever thought, what is a saint? Somebody maybe wears white clothes and has a halo on the head. Is that what a saint is? Well, actually, no. A saint simply means someone who is holy, someone who has been set apart for a particular purpose. Uh, if you remember in the Old Testament, there was a nation called the nation of Israel, and they were called a holy nation or a saintly people because they were set apart for God's purposes in the world. They were set apart to be his, to achieve his plans in the world. And that's what Paul is saying to these people here. He's saying you guys were set apart for God's purposes, for God's plans. And that's kind of significant as well, isn't it? Because if you're a Christian person here tonight, what that means is that your whole life is not just for you to live however you want You've actually been set apart to live for God's plans, God's purposes in the world. So when you're at uni, when you're at home, when you're driving the car, when you're using the internet, you are to be doing those things for God, for his purposes in the world. You're set apart for him. Uh, I was chatting to a guy actually last week, first year, no, second year guy, sorry, uh, studying psychology it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, he was kind of talking to me about his disil- disillusionment, I guess, with our current community. It was a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, I actually asked him, I said, can I write down what you said to me? <laughs> and I'm going to read it to you. He said this. He said, I wanted to do psych to help people. But the more I get to know people, the more I realise that people are really selfish. And they're pretty mean. And I don't want to help them anymore. And I thought that's pretty honest, you know, second year psych guy. Um, maybe he's done more thinking about things than I did when I was 19, but there you go. Um, but what he was kind of describing, right, is that when he looks at our community, he actually sees that there's a problem. Sees that actually most of us, when we're left to ourselves, are actually pretty selfish people. And Jesus is saying, Paul's saying here, he's saying, you guys, if you're a Christian, you're not meant to be just like the crowd. Uh, you're, meant, you're set apart. You're to be different to that. I looked up some statistics about this the other day, just out of interest. I trying to think, I wonder how selfish we are as Australians. The latest statistics I got was 2012, so that could be a bit outdated, but here we go. In 2012, us Aussies, do you know how much we spent on gadgets. It's this little kind of gadget column in statistics. Phones, iPads, that sort of thing, gadgets. $9.5 billion Australians. Incredible. And yet, that just is so small compared to the money that we give to foreign aid. Tiny in comparison. We as a nation, we're actually pretty selfish. Now, some people will tell you, uh, some people will say, yeah, well, if we had better education, 
then we'd be able to progress from that. We'd become the good society. Or if we had better something else, then you know we would become the type of society that's not so selfish and we cared more about people and that would really improve who we are as a community of people. But actually, Paul wants to go on in this passage to say there's only one thing that's really going to change our society as a whole. It's when people's hearts as individuals are changed as they hear the gospel as I hear the good news about Jesus. Well, that's kind of interesting, I reckon. So have a look there at verses 3 to 8. Verses 3 to 8, Paul wants to actually describe God's saving work. And as he does, he describes how God's saving work in Jesus changes people so that they start loving people instead of just being selfish. Have a look at verse 3. Paul starts his section and he gives thanks to God for what Christians have. He thanks God, uh, not because Christians have got good circumstances or lots of iPhones or anything like that. No, he thanks God because of something else, something deeper that actually brings them a real joy. And what you see, three things there. He thanks God for faith, for hope and for love. Faith, hope and love. I look there, verses 3 and 4, I'll read them out. We always thank God, Paul says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what is it that God's done in the life of Christians? Well, firstly, he's given them faith, which has actually enabled them and changed them so that they would love other people. And then he's also given them hope. Hope that is laid up in heaven. Hope that brings joy. That is what Paul is so thankful for. He's thankful that God gives Christians faith, hope and love. But more than that, you keep reading it down to verse 5. Look at that verse 5. He says this. He says how they have got those things. How the faith, hope and love have come. Verse 5, he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. See, how is it that Christians get faith, hope and love? Well, it's actually as they hear the word of the gospel. Uh, Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, what's this gospel? What is gospel, this word that Christians use, that kind of jargon word? Well, essentially, gospel is just a message of good news. It's an announcement of good news. And the announcement is this, that you who have lived a life of selfishness of sin can be fully forgiven because Christ died for you. The announcement is that we were so sinful that the Son of God had to come and die like us, but yet we are so loved that the Son of God was glad to come and die on that cross for us so we could be forgiven. It's the announcement that because he rose from the dead, we can have hope of eternal life, life forever with him. And what Paul wants to say is that it's actually by hearing that gospel, that news, that message. Well, firstly, to have faith, you have to be able to hear it, don't you? You Someone has to speak it to you, you have to hear it. But it's actually by believing that message, that gospel, that actually compels us to love like God has loved us. It changes us. 
And thirdly, it's actually by knowing that that message is a victory over death, over sin, over Satan, over everything evil that actually gives us hope. Hope for a new world to come. Hope for a world that is no longer defined by selfishness and sin. But, well, we actually look forward to this hope of a world that is defined by other-centred love, where people care for each other more than they care for themselves. And I just think this is so significant, isn't it? Paul is showing us here that when people get Jesus, when they put their faith in him, it changes them so that they love other people, so that they've got a, a joy that springs from the hope that can't be taken away. So you think about it. If our hope is just in ourselves, in what we can achieve, in what we can do, in who we are in this world, then what's our life going to look like? Well, I reckon for me it's going to look like trying to get as much stuff for myself before I go. The one with the most toys wins, right? Well, actually, no. The one with the most toys still dies in the end. But if, on the other hand, if our faith, if our hope, if what brings about this love, if, if it is not centred in ourselves and what we can get, but it's centred in Jesus and what he's given us, what he promises us, so that, that actually really changes us. It actually means that we're going to start living for him instead of living for ourselves. But that actually means that we won't be living just to get stuff because we already know that, well, we've got everything we could ever desire in the world to come. And so we lift that. That means that we know the one who really knows how to love and we kind of try to learn how to love like him. See, Jesus, when you actually look at Jesus and his life, you read about him. He knew that his hope wasn't in this world. And it actually freed him to love other people. It actually kind of gave him this security that he knew that the real world that he was looking for was the world to come. So he didn't have to get stuff now and be selfish. He was actually free to love and give instead of just take, take, take. It really, really changed him. And it seems to me that that's what Jesus, by his Spirit, is trying to work in the lives of Christians. That we would be people who would be like him. That we would look out instead of just taking for ourselves. It seems to me that if that happened to enough people, then that would really create real change, wouldn't it? That's why the church, that's why Christian groups on campus should be different to the way other clubs on campus are. To the way other community groups are. We should be radically different known for our love for one another. Paul goes on, he says in verses 6 to 8, he says that this first church, the church in Colossae, their love was actually really noticeable. Have a look there, verses 6 to 8. It says, Since the day you heard it, that is the gospel message, and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Do you see that? Epaphras was this guy. It's kind of a funny name. We don't have many people called Epaphras these days. Epaphras was a guy. He, he went, he visited the church, taught them the gospel, and he reports back to Paul and he says, Paul, the gospel has changed them. And he reports to them their love 
for one another. Epaphras was blown away about how the gospel had changed these people. And it seems to me that when you get the gospel, when you understand this message, you actually start to understand something incredible about who we are in God's eyes. We actually discover that that there is a joy that this world could never really ever give us. See, when you get the gospel, you understand that the king of the universe, the one who created us, the one who's going to rule for all eternity, is the one who just really, really loves us and cares for us. And there's just so much freedom and security found in that. That no matter what happens, the thing that really matters, our eternal security, can never be robbed from us. And that's what actually changes us. So you have a look there at verses 9 to 11. Paul moves on there and he wants to say, guys, I want you to know what God is doing in this world. I want you to know God's purposes. Have a look in verse 9. He says, And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, Paul could have prayed for a whole lot of things for this church, a whole range of things that he could have prayed for. But what does he pray for? He prays that these Christians would know what God wills for the world. He prays that they would know what God is doing in the world, what God wants for this world and all the people in it. So what is it? What is this will of God? What is it that God desperately wants? Well, actually, if you go to a verse in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, it's spelled out really clearly for us. In Ephesians 1, Paul tells us that the will of God is that all things in heaven and on earth would be united in Christ. That all things would be summed up under him The will of God, you see, is that in the end, Jesus would be the king of everything. That his son would rule and reign. It actually begins right now. Since Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, Jesus is reigning and ruling as king. And more and more people, as they hear this word of the gospel, are becoming Christian. And they're making Jesus not only the saviour of their lives, but the Lord, the king. And so that's what God wants in the world. Uh, For you and me here today, God wants each and every one of us to acknowledge our sin, to repent, to make Jesus our king, and to make him the king over every area of our life. Every area. He is to be the ruler. God's will is that Jesus would be honoured as king. And so Paul says in verse 10, Verse 10 there of Colossians 1, he says, Seeing you know the will of God, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That is, live your life in a way that shows that you exalt Jesus as King. Walk in ways that please Him, be obedient to God, and therefore fulfill the word of God. See, in verse 11, Paul prays. Because this isn't easy, Paul prays that we would have strength to do this. Strength to live for Jesus and not just for ourselves. And I want to ask, well, how do you get this strength? It's pretty easy to be selfish. I'll admit that. 
How do you get the strength to believe as Jesus is king? How do you get the strength to love people that they're hard to love? Well, I think it's actually what Paul goes on to say in the next few verses. See, Paul wants to say that you need to understand that what you have when you have Jesus is eternally significant. Have a look at what Jesus has done for you. Verses 12 to 14, Paul says three things. Remember these three things. Verse 12, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What does that mean? It means that if you die tonight, if you trust in Jesus, you are straight in him. You've already got the jersey on. You're qualified. There's nothing for you to do because Christ has done it all if you trust him. You're already qualified. And secondly, it's just like it. It says you have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So if you're a Christian person, then that is... What has already happened to you? Uh, You and me who deserved God's judgment for our sin. We deserve to be forsaken by him. Jesus has plucked us out of that kind of terrible predicament. And he's transferred us into his kingdom, the place of joy for today. He's rescued us. That's what's already happened. And you see it there in verse 14. Paul describes how it is that these things have happened. It's in him, in Jesus. It's because he has redeemed you. It's because he brought you back from death to life by his death on the cross. He died the death that we deserve. It's incredible, isn't it? This eternal significance that Christianity speaks about. See, friends, this is no kind of Three dollar bowl. Sit on a shelf when you understand it. I think our mates often they think, well, that's what Steve does on Sunday. Goes off to church and then he joins us after. That's his thing. It's not just my thing. It's not just your thing. It's God's thing. Isn't it? It's the most significant thing in the whole world, and people need to know about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul goes on and he wants to say about this gospel message, this message that our sin is so serious that we need to be rescued from it, but our Christ is so wonderful that he has saved us and he offers us forgiveness and hope. Paul wants to say that that message is like a treasure inside a clay jar. It's a treasure inside a clay jar. And what has to happen? Well... What good is a treasure? It's hidden. It's inside a clay jar. It's hopeless. No one can see it. No one can enjoy it. Paul says Christians are those clay jars. There's nothing all that significant or important about us. We're actually not that special. We're just sinners saved by grace. But if you know this gospel, then you have an incredible treasure. A treasure that our world needs to know. A treasure that, well, not only transforms our lives, but it transforms our eternities. When we believe it, when we hang on to it. I want to finish just by getting you guys to think about that question that we thought about at the start. But I want to change it just briefly. It's like an outline there in front of you. 
if all this is real, if this is really true, Jesus is the king, if our lives are meant to be lived for him, then what do you need to do in your life that needs to change? Are there areas in your life that you aren't submitting to him as king? Are there attitudes or thoughts that you're having that you might need to change? I want to give you just a minute to think about those things and maybe pray about them. And then I'll pray again.